Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Blue State Conversations. Matthew here. Will is not going to be joining us for this episode. He has some things he had to take care of. So uh, we're going to be going ahead with our guest here. But before we get into that, our opening prop. So there have been a lot of egalitarian views of men and women's relationships dominate society. Feminists often claim that they are responsible for a positive shift in society. The argument is that social, legal, and institutional powers were set against women, requiring an active involvement by government and society to right those wrongs. However, some have also said that these go f- too far or cause more problems that maybe don't actually necessitate measures taken to solve the first problems. So today we're joined by Jack Kammer from Male Friendly Media. He produced and hosted the radio show In a Man's Shoes from 1983 to 1989. He went back to school in 2005 to get his master's in social work because he saw that gender issues are connected to multiple serious social problems in the United States and in other developed nations. He was a correctional officer in Baltimore City Detention Center. He has written three books, Goodwill Toward Men, Men Have All the Power, How Come Women Make the Rules, and Heroes of the Blue Sky Rebellion, How You and Other Young Men Can Claim All the Happiness in the World. He has presented and worked with many organizations on men's issues, including Congressman Elijah Cummings. He is the host of Men Are Talking and Goodwill Toward Men podcasts, which air alternating weekly. He can be found at his website, mailfriendlymedia.com, and his books on Amazon and other retailers. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for that introduction. You've done your homework. <laughs> I definitely went through and made sure that uh, the great long career and a lot of work that he put into this subject, and so we're very excited to have you here. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, so I guess just right off the top, why mail-friendly? because there is so much male unfriendliness out there. We're a lot better. Men aren't perfect, but we're a lot better than the current discourse would have anyone believe. And at the same time, there might be a little too female, a little too much female friendliness, whereby women get a pass on a lot of things. There isn't very really, there isn't really very much scrutiny of female culture. There's a lot of scrutiny of male culture. And I'm not saying men are perfect, but I do challenge those who seem to believe that women are perfect because women are human. Women do bad things too. And anybody who gets a free pass to do whatever they want to do is going to do bad things. And if they're heterosexual, they're going to be doing bad things to men often. And that's not a good formula for harmony, a harmonious community, harmonious families, harmonious workplaces. That's why male-friendly media. I think, you know, we need some friends. We, we're getting beat up around the face and shoulders uh, every day, and it's wrong. It's way over the top. It's pretty selfish. It's uh, pretty arrogant. It's pretty pretty absent any self-examination on the part of many women. There is actually a poster out there that you can buy that says, women are perfect. 
And, and, and when that's part of the culture, you're in trouble because women aren't perfect. They can't be perfect. And I'm, I'm not saying women are bad. I'm saying women are human. It only gets bad when they pretend they're better than human. So that's why male friendly. So typically when you bring this up, right, being male friendly, what, what kind of responses do you get? Okay. First of all, let me say this. I don't really care. I don't really care what responses I get because of course I'm going to get bad responses. And that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem. You know, if you're in, if you're working as an activist on male gender issues, you better have a pretty thick skin because (laughs) the invectives fly fast and furious. I've been doing this since 1983. So yeah. Okay. People don't like it. I don't care. I don't expect you to like it. If you liked it, I wouldn't need to be here. It's because you don't like it. It's because your mind is closed. It's because you have all of these stereotypical, ugly ideas about men. And you have all of these highfalutin, unjustified ideas about how wonderful women are that we have this problem. I I would say that the primary problem I I am focusing on that our society needs to recognize and focus on is an idea of female supremacy. There are many ways in which it is baked into our culture that women are better than men. And I'm not saying women are worse than men, but I'm saying men are as good as women. And so the situation is a lot like It was back in the early 60s when women did a really good thing for everybody to get men to acknowledge, recognize, think about, ponder, try to overcome all of the ways in which we men were raised to believe that we were superior to women. And I'm sure I don't need to detail the ways in which history tells us and shows us that we were raised to believe we were superior to women. We've been working on that problem for 50, 60 years, and it's not quite done yet, but we haven't begun on the flip side of it. One of the things I like to say is the most sexist idea of all is the belief that only one sex is ever sexist. Yes. Men 50, 60 years ago were pretty sexist. Women today are still pretty sexist. And because nobody's calling them on it. Nobody is saying, all right, get off your high horse. You know, it was bad when men demeaned you because you were a woman in some category that you wanted to be valued and respected and appreciated in. The same thing is true of men. And it's true that men didn't want to share the privileges of the male domain with women, but we got over it and women are pretty much welcome in the male domain. The same is not true to the same extent for men's being, for men being welcomed into the female domain. Now, what's the female domain? The idea is that men have all the power. So the only domain is men's domain. There is a whole different dimension of power that women have. 
it's not hierarchical. It's not like an 87-story tall office building, which is obvious and plain to see from miles away. It's much more like a convention center. It might only have two or three stories, but it covers 87 acres. And to say that nothing important goes on in a convention center is, it's just about as wrong as it can be. And women's domain is much more like what goes on in a convention center. It's not hierarchical, but the fact that men's domain is hierarchical really doesn't work for most men. It works for the men at the top in some ways, but in some ways, even the men at the top aren't really that happy. When we talk about the, the male hierarchy and the patriarchy, okay, sure, let's acknowledge that there are men at the top of the government. All of our presidents have been men. Okay, great. How many has that been? What, 47? <laughs> we need to look at the men at the bottom, and we don't. What's going on in the female domain is that it's not hierarchical. And so the average woman doesn't have a ton of power. But the average woman is not as likely to be powerless in the same way that the average man is likely to have very little power. We need to acknowledge that. So basically, you know, that we always focus on the powerful men of history, the kings, the presidents, the generals. But when we compare the average, and then what'll happen is we compare the average woman to them. But that's not a fair comparison because you're comparing an average to a top. Well, and you're also comparing different realms of influence. When people talk about how history is all about men, I say, okay, name one of the estimated, they didn't even actually keep count, name one of the estimated 22 men who died building the Brooklyn Bridge. Name one. I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell And women can't either, but they will insist that history is all about men. It's all no, it's all about some men, and it's very little about most men. Because I had questions about Gloria Steinem on my, my SAT history exam. There's mm -hmm. numerous questions that pop up on that exam. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, that's, so I guess the next question would be is, we talked about, you talked about how there was a point in time where men definitely exercised a lot of societal power over women. And then we've been changing that. So do we live in a patriarchy today? The word patriarchy really only means that we live in a society that is based on patrilineal heritage. Kids take their father's last name, for instance. The idea of a patriarchy is just a sociological phenomenon. What we hear a lot, though, isn't just patriarchy. What we hear is the patriarchy. I could say to you, there are lots of boogeymen in the world. But if I say to you, the boogeyman is going to get you, that's a whole different thing. Oh, my God, there is a boogeyman who is out to get me? And there is a patriarchy? The patriarchy. And this all began... Back in the early 60s, let me say this, first of all. Do you know the book, The Feminine Mystique? You've heard of that one? Yes. Uh, I okay. think it, it was that Friedan who wrote Yes. 
Betty Friedan in the early 60s. Yes. And she is pretty much credited with launching the modern feminist movement with that book. She talked about the problem that had no name. And look, I'm a counter-feminist, not an anti-feminist. And yes, women definitely had problems by virtue of, not by virtue, by vice of the sexism against them. Women were stuck at home, which is a nice place to be. Too much of any good thing is a bad thing. And yeah, there were plenty of problems with women back in the 60s, being addicted to Valium and all, all kinds of pills because they just weren't happy. It was the problem that had no name. But in that book, that where Betty Friedan described the problems women were facing, she was also sympathetic to men. She described the situation in which she said, and apparently it's, this is no picnic for men either. And she even quoted a recent Red Book article Red Book Magazine article. She quoted that article in her book, and that article was about the problems that men were having with their wives. It wasn't men bad, women good. So we got off to a good start with Betty Friedan being fair and balanced. And she has gone on to say, later on, she has gone on to say, look, this conversation has gone on too long with just women. Let's get men to the center stage too. So we got off to a good start. But then in the early 60s, not long after Friedan's book, might even have been before things were brewing in the culture, a group of women, I think they might've been in Boston. They might've been in New York. I'm not exactly sure. They were called the Red Stockings. And they issued the Red Stockings Manifesto. And the Red Stockings Manifesto said, Women are oppressed. We identify men as our oppressors. Okay, so there we are. We men are oppressors. We are the enemy. We are demonized. Rather than, as Friedan would have had it, men and women get together for a negotiation whereby women said, hey, guys, look, we're going crazy here. We're stuck in the house all, all day. And we love our kids and we like raising them. Too much of anything's a good thing. And we'd like to have some careers outside the home. What do you think? Is there anything you could help us out with? Could we swap roles in any way? I think if that had been the approach, a lot of men would have said, oh my God, yes, indeed. I would love to spend more time at home with my kids because I really don't like riding the train into town for an hour and 10 minutes every morning to go to work at some corporation rather than saying, wait a second, hold on, our lives aren't exactly heaven either. Let's work out a deal here. Let's try to see how we can both be happier. But it didn't happen that way. It's been this one-sided discussion. It hasn't even been a discussion. It's been, you know, a harangue. It's been a one-sided harangue for 60 years about how bad women have it and how good men have it and how we need to, to give it up. And it's just not balanced. It's not healthy. And there are a lot of men who are unhappy. There are a lot of men who are giving up. Suicide is going up. Suicide among young boys is going up. They look at their future and they say, wow, this is what being an adult man is. I, I'm shamed. I'm embarrassed. I'm treated poorly. Nobody listens to me. This isn't what I want. Why should I go to college? Why should I even have a job? I'll sit in my parents' basement and play video games. 
it's not healthy. We live in an era where there is a lot of attention paid to diversity of opinion, listening to all of the voices, honoring and respecting your stakeholders, and really trying to get to a win-win. And in this era where all of that is supposed to be the guiding light, it's incredible how thoroughly men have been excluded and even demonized in the discussion about how gender relations can be improved. It's, in my view, a strategy, a tactic for women to keep the focus on men rather than to allow any focus on women. Because if there were focus on women, honest focus on women, we would be able to identify, even though we might not have names for these phenomena, we would be able to identify some pretty significant advantages and privileges that women have. And asking women to on, be honest about that, to be willing to share those advantages and privileges with men just the way we were expected to share our advantages and privileges with women, that would be a pretty nice and healthy thing. But as long as it's you're mansplaining, you're a, you're a sexual harasser, you're a, you're a member of the rape culture, da 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 da. As long as that's as long as that's the tenor of the discussion, it's not really a discussion. It's a harangue. The word that women use, even when men want to explain something, is demeaning to men. You've heard the term mansplaining. Yes, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, isn't that kind of rude and hostile? I, and it's used all the time for just, if I'm talking about what I believe, then they'll say, well, that's mansplaining. It's explaining what I believe. And so what we need to be able to say, even though people aren't going to like it, who cares? What we need to be able to say is what has feminism been for the past 60 years other than femsplaining? Yeah. And make them ponder that for a second. And we have to be able to say, you can call me a misogynist if you want. I don't care. But what I am is a person who's interested in a healthier society. I don't think women are perfect. I don't think men are perfectly bad. Now, if we can agree on those two ideas, then we really ought to be able to have a good discussion and talk about how we can make life better for everybody. Yeah, because I remember that when I was reading, you know, selections from for Dan and, and a lot, I remember the response back to for Dan was that, I think it was Foolish Laughley who wrote that women have a power that is different than a man's power. And the problem is that women are not recognizing that. And that's why a lot of them are unhappy. Yes. I, that definitely resonated with me because it, I do feel that when I interact with females versus males, there is a different type of power that, that they exert. And it, and I think yes. we too much have focused on our corporate sense of power where there's the boss and then there's the underlings and your job is to get to be as close to the boss. Or being the boss as possible. You want to be the senior VP. If you're the junior VP, you want to get to senior VP. If you're not a VP and you're a middle level manager, you want to make junior VP and you, you're always trying to go up. And, and that's why I think your analogy about the convention center versus the high rise is actually very useful for how everybody's trying to live their life like it's the high rise when that's not the only way you can live your life. As you said, men are not always happy because the guy at the top is, he's having yeah. a great time with it, but the guys at the bottom aren't. Right. You know. So Phyllis Schlafly, of course, uh, some of your audience might not know, Phyllis Schlafly was one of the chief opponents of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. And the reason, as you said, is because she thought the Equal Rights Amendment would actually 
detract from women's power. She wrote a book called The Power of the Positive Woman. Yes. And in The Power of the Positive Woman, she tells an interesting little story, which I think really speaks volumes. She told the story of a hoodwinked husband whose wife said to a friend, my husband and I have an agreement. He makes all the big decisions. I make all the little decisions. He decides whether the United States should stay in the United Nations, whether we should raise taxes. He decides whether we should go to war. I make all the little decisions. I decide where the kids go to school, where we go on vacation, and whether he should change his job. Mm. Now, yes, those are little decisions compared to deciding whether you're not the United States should go to war, but no individual husband has the ability to decide absolutely whether we go to war. But millions and millions of women have the absolute ability to decide where we're going to live because the man will say, yes. It's the joke they tell you when you're getting married, right? Everybody's, yes. you know, the first time you say yes, dear, every guy goes, oh, he gets in the all deals. Yes. 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 That is a form of power. That is a very significant form of power that has a real and tangible actual effect on millions of families. Most men in this hierarchy don't really have the ability to make such momentous decisions that affect the actual day-to-day -day life, lives of their families. And that's women's domain. It's the convention center. Mm. It's not the high rise. It's not the, it's not the penthouse. It's not the C-suite. It's the convention center. And the sisterhood is powerful. And as a person who's interested in politics, that it's a social problem when there is huge income inequality in the society, because it causes people to think, it causes people to, at the bottom to think that they're not being treated fairly, that they don't have a chance. They give up, they get angry. They don't want to play ball. Right. So that's income inequality. There is a huge personal power inequality in the male power structure, in the male hierarchy. Yeah. And you got a lot of really powerful guys running most of the fortune 500 companies, but you got what, a hundred, 200, a thousand times more guys, you know, working, working it, it in the Swiss. Yeah. Yes. They're the grunts. Now that's inequality. And that's, that leaves a lot of men to think, why should I even play ball with this game is rigged against me. The situation is very different for women because there isn't so much power inequality between women because all the woman needs is a man and some kids. And she is the queen of a small queendom. Mm. And so we have millions of women, millions and millions of women who all got a pretty good thing going. It's not as powerful, perhaps in some ways, as being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but a lot of women don't want that. And they're happy. They've got their kids. They've got their home. They've got the husband working and bringing home a paycheck. They get to make a lot of decisions. That is 
much more income equality. And that helps explain, I think, why the sisterhood is powerful. Because I, I actually was remember reading a few years ago that right out of college, women are actually out earning men, but by the time they hit 30, women are no longer out earning men. So yes. it's between 20 and 30 that it begins to tail off. Yes. And that, to me, that often supported the idea that a lot of women were then, that's when they're having their families. It's right around that. Whereas men are being pushed to make money to support for those families. One of the reasons women make less money than men is because they have to. They can make less money than men. Many women can. I'm not talking about every woman, but many women feel it's perfectly within the bounds of their family expectations to make less than the husband. Another reason women make less money than men is that they have more options than men. If a woman wants to be a full-blown type A, kick-ass, whatever, the society will support her in that. If she wants to stay home and the finances allow it, provided by the husband, society's fine with that too. It's not the same for men. In the COVID epidemic, there have been multiple stories of how the COVID epidemic has been harder on women. You've seen those? Yes. Okay. All right. So the idea is that with daycare and schools not being closed, the mother has to go home and take care of the kids. And she gets to, she, and she has to, she is forced to give up her illustrious career and sacrifice her illustrious career because she's a woman and she gives up her career for her family. Okay. Why does she give up the career for the family? Because women make less than men, and so it's economically sensible for the man to stay at the job. Okay, I get that. However, imagine the many families in which the man and the woman make about the same amount of money. And then on top of that, imagine the smaller number of families, but still significant and growing number of families in which the woman makes more than the man. So in, in those families where the man and the woman both make the same amount of money and COVID hit and the schools closed and daycare closed and somebody had to stay home with the kids, how many times do you think that the woman said to the man, one of us really needs to stay home. I would like to do that, but I'm wondering, would you like to do that instead? Probably a good amount of them, especially if she was making more money. Most families, most guys that I know that I talk to where the woman made more money, the, he's the one who stayed at home. Yeah, but in those situations where it's equal, where the man and the woman make the, the, the same amount of money, and it would be economically sensible for the man to stay home as for the woman to stay home, how many of those families do you think had a discussion like the one I just detailed, where the woman acknowledged that maybe... She is assuming a privilege and not offering it equally to the man if he should wish to, to take that option. That, it, in my life, in my view, and, and I'm much older than you, and I know it's, little, it's different. I think it's not quite as different as it should be in the younger generations. In, in what I see in my life and in my social circle, the expectation is that, of course, the woman will stay home 
It's the mother thing. The, the, no, they call it the mom thing. It's the mom thing. They love their kids and they're so much better with the kids and the kids want to be with them. And mothers are just so much more patient and all of that stuff. And maternal instinct. Yeah. 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 So that I think points to the privileges that women just, you know, naturally assume. And men would, many men would be very happy to, to be offered those same privileges. So I guess that does bring up a couple of interesting questions about what is expected of men. I guess there's three things that I view men as having different expectations. There's an expectation from society, right? The general society, and then by women as a group, and then by potential partners, like what a wife or uh, somebody who's interested romantically will expect. So I guess that that's kind of like a three-pronged question, but maybe just one at a time. So what is generally expected of men by society? Okay. I appreciate the question and it's a good question. However, my purpose here is to go on the offense. And so what I want to point out is that 60 years ago, when women were talking about being lawyers and doctors and scientists, we, people might've said, that's not what men expect of women. You won't find a good husband. If you become a lawyer, the man will be threatened by you. He wants somebody to stay home and take care of the kids. But women really didn't say, oh, if the man wants me to not be a lawyer, even though I want to be, I better do what he says. Women asserted the right to have happiness on their terms. Okay, so now let's go back to your question. What do women expect of men? Probably the equivalent of somebody to, to uh, do the traditional role. The, the Pew Research Center, not too long ago, did a survey of what's important for a man and a woman to be regarded as a, I forget exactly the terminology. Was it a good partner or a good parent or a good spouse? Probably partner. That's the, mm -hmm. generally the term they use. Yeah. Much more but for both men and for, for both men and women respondents. Much more was it said that it's important for the man to make money. Much more important than it is for the woman to make money, to be a good spouse a good partner. So yes, we can think about what's expected of men, but what's expected of men doesn't take us forward. What's expected of men is all about what men have been doing traditionally. We got past what women did traditionally to give women more options for happiness in their lives. And we need to get past traditional expectations of men for men to have more happiness in their lives. There are many men. I don't know how many we haven't done research on it. We don't want to do research on it. I don't think we really want to know. Although there are occasionally, I think Esquire did a, a study. It's not scientific. It's not scholarly. It's not part of the sociological literature. Many men would, if they knew they could still be loved and still be respected. Many men would really be quite happy cutting back on the money game to have more time with their kids, to 
work-life balance wasn't even a phrase 60 years ago. It became a phrase because women started feeling the pressure that men have felt since almost forever. Wait a second. Yeah, I want to have a nice job. I want to make money, but come on, this is too much. And men need to be able to say, yeah, you're right. It's been too damn much. And, and not every man works in a corporation. A lot of men are really under a lot of stress, running around town in their pickup trucks with ladders and paint buckets and paintbrushes thrown into their, their pickup truck, trying to hustle a trade, a living. It's very stressful. It's not exactly the most rewarding career in the world. And a lot of men would say, I, I work with a lot of tradesmen. We have a couple of houses and I would deal with a lot of tradesmen. And they, whenever I asked a question, I said, yes, of course, I would love to do that. And it's just not offered to men at the same availability as it's assumed to be the province of women. So, yeah. So really, if a woman decides to stay home with her kids, everyone goes, oh, good for you. But if a man says, I'm staying home with my kids, people go, why? Yes. It's not yes. the same standard. Yes. Yeah. Because I think, as you said earlier, with that experience, it, unless it's the woman making more than the man, usually the expectation is the woman will stay home. That's all yes. the expectation every single time. And it's not even asked. But even though we have that expectation, for some reason, women are not supposed to be viewed in that manner. So this creates an actual kind of a societal problem where we're not talking on the same level about yes. this problem. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Wouldn't it be great if men and women both had 100% options, at least that they could put on the table? Yes. And they could negotiate the exact mixture they want of earning money and doing the home life thing. The good news is that there are a lot of women who still feel, even 60 years into the women's movement, there are a lot of women who still feel pressure to focus on their kids more than anything else. But some of those women, although they love their kids, they really would like to be, name it, astronauts, scientists, business executives, lawyers, doctors, name it. But those kinds of jobs take pretty strong commitment, especially if you want to be a scientist. It's very competitive. Being a CEO, it's pretty competitive. So there are a lot of women who might want to really focus on that, but they're hamstrung because there aren't a lot of men who would back them up on the home side. Wouldn't it be great if there were equal opportunity for the man to say, you know what? I would love to do that. Let's try that. Let me be the one who takes care of the home life, and I will support you in every way I can for you to be the best surgeon in this town. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I think a lot of people would say that's the drive for equality that they're looking for. And honestly, if in my own personal opinion and just and from others that I've talked to, a lot of people feel that this is no longer the feminist movement's goal is actual equality where everybody comes together and negotiates. Yes. Yes. Yes, I think the real proof of, the real disproof of the idea that, oh, yes, we've achieved this wonderful equality where 
men can be full-time dads if they want to be blah, 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 blah. I don't mean blah, 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 blah. I respect and really admire full-time fathers. But the real proof, the disproof of the idea that everything is balanced and equal now is where the rubber meets the road. And where the rubber meets the road is where this marriage is dissolved in divorce. And so it's entirely possible, happens all the time, that a very loving, wonderful husband is at home and his wife comes to him and says, dear, we need to talk. I've fallen in love with somebody else and I'm divorcing you. I'm going with Joe and we're going to move to Idaho. And of course I'm taking the kids. And that typically happens. I think it's 70, yes. 80% of the time they, they are awarded uh, custody. Yes. It's the majority of custody. It's by no means an equal playing field. It's by no means the norm that the men can say, well, you can, you and Joe can go where you want, but you are not taking my kids. Yeah, it's, it's, that is very common. And actually that, that was one of the things I did want to talk to you about is I, I found it fascinating that he had an episode on Title IX, which uh, for those of you who are listening, I definitely would go check out his episodes. He's got a lot of great guests on there who are experts in their subject matter. But especially like we have all these laws that are supposedly to enforce equality. It's supposed to kind of, the idea is that we're supposed to get as close to 50-50 as we can on these things. Like Title IX, like does Title IX actually provide that equality or is it more of a tool just for women? Title IX is in flux right now. Under Obama, there was uh, the Dear Colleague letter. Do you know about the Dear Colleague letter? Yeah, I believe I heard about it. I can't remember the details that. Go ahead. It came out of the, I'm pretty sure this is factually correct. It came out of the Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education and an official there. I won't, you could say she's a bureaucrat, not elected. An official there issued a dear colleague letter. She sent a letter to all of the colleges and universities that received federal money, which is just about everyone. I think there are a handful that don't and said, okay, you want to continue getting your federal money. Here's how you're going to start adjudicating accusations of uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment between students. And this dear colleague letter said, you're going to, you're not going to operate on a propon, you're not going to operate on a, a, a shadow of the doubt standard of proof. You're going to operate on the preponderance of evidence. And so the preponderance of evidence is the lowest legal standard of proof. It basically means if one party has three witnesses saying A, and another part party only has two witnesses saying B, the preponderance of the evidence is that it's A. Right. Because the first party was able to find three people willing to lie for him or her, possibly. As Patriots fans will know, it's uh, what they use to say Brady um, deflated the footballs. Same standard. Ah, so. So people might remember that case and understand what they mean by that low standard. Well, look, Matthew, not everybody is a Patriots fan. No, but I think they probably remember (laughs) that incident in one way or the other. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah, Something, but you're right. It's it's the one that's often used in. uh, Yes. Yes. And in civil courts, nobody goes to jail. Now, nobody's going to jail 
in a Title IX hearing, your whole academic career can be shot to hell yes. if you're accused of uh, sexual assault. And uh, it'll go on your transcript. You'll be kicked out of school. You want to try to get back into another school. Well, why did you leave the other school? Let me see your transcript. Oh my God, you're a rapist. Um, sorry, you can't come here. It's, it's a very significant penalty. Preponderance of the evidence will do. So that was under the Obama administration. Then when Trump got in, Betsy DeVos said, no, we believe in something called due process in this country and cross-examination where both parties get to ask each other questions that they might not want to be asked. That is part of the foundation of how we try to approach the truth in, in our system. So that meant that a lot of uh, women who wanted to accuse men of rape had to answer some tough questions. Why did you text him 27 times the next morning to say how much fun you had? <laughs> Those kinds of things. The, the, the Title IX Dear Colleague system was very unfair to men. And federal courts all over the country have been saying so. And in awarding falsely accused and falsely adjudicated men millions of dollars for what happened to them. Okay, so that's what uh, Betsy DeVos did. Then Biden came in and another person in the Department of Education has been trying to roll it back towards more of what the dear colleague letter said. So things are in flux. So it's but, kind of going back. Yeah, now that's only one aspect of Title IX, but it's a very significant aspect of Title IX. Well, yeah, it's, it's, well, it is made a lot of the headlines where you have yes. people talking about, it. you know, I, I think there was a famous one where the police cleared him of any wrongdoing, but the school still kicked him out. I think that might've been Syracuse, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't quote me on the school, but it was an American university. And they basically, the guy, they found that they have the evidence. You can see the girl taking him home and coming on to him and all that. You, you can clearly see that if, and then he, the police said, Hey, there's no crime here, but the school still kicked him out. Got it. So it's the dear colleague letter. Right. Because in it's as the dear colleague letter doesn't talk about what the police should do. The dear colleague letter talks about what the school should do and the school should have this weak little panel of professors who know nothing about standards of evidence or cross-examination. The, the standard really seems to be, right? Believe the woman. Right. And if always, yes, believe the woman. And if the woman's story changes, well, that's because of the trauma. Okay. So look, I'm a social worker. I, I was a social worker. I believe that there is such a thing as trauma-informed care. I get that. When a man's story changes and the panel says, wait a second, you didn't, this isn't what you said last time. You must be lying. How about, first of all, why not believe the man, believe the woman, call the man a scumbag is what it amounts to, and, but not believe the man. What's that about? Well, because you could say it's a traumatizing experience to be hauled in front of your school's Exactly. So that, yes, the man ought to also be able to say, I would like some trauma-informed care here too, because guess what? This is horribly traumatic for me to be a second-year medical student and you're getting ready to kick me out. It's pretty freaking traumatic. 
can I have some, can I have some sympathy here, some empathy, please? We're the oppressors. We're, we've been demonized. So no, you can't have any. You're bad. It's, it's really, it's just incredibly not healthy. Yeah. Here's another one for you. Going back to the Title IX issue on sexual assault, there is a, a survey instrument that is used by Title IX administrators at universities all across the country. It's called the ARC3 survey. It's ARCC, and I don't remember exactly what it stands for. Something about a campus collaborative. But this survey that universities are encouraged to distribute to all of their students, men and women, asks about ways in which you have perpetrated sexual abuse and ways in which you have had sexual abuse perpetrated upon you. As you might not be surprised to hear, if a woman has been forced to have sex against her will without consent, there is a place on the form for that. But if the man has been tricked into having sex with a woman. I don't know how graphic you want to get, but I can lay out a scenario for you where the man is primed and ready for vaginal intercourse, but not intending to have it where it could be forced upon him. If that happens to him, there is no place on this survey to report that. Mm. Yet another example of female impunity. It's just not balanced. Yeah, because that anybody, even the most hardcore, you know, feminist, if you sat them down to ask, can men be sexually assaulted? They would say yes. They might then argue that it doesn't happen as often and all that sort of thing, but they would say yes. So the fact that's not included on the form is actually wild. Yes. And I was in touch with the uh, chief administrator of the form. What do you think I got for a response? A lot of bureaucratic doublespeak and, oh, yes, the committee will get together to examine this. It's baloney. Last time I checked, it hadn't changed. And the last time I wrote to him, he didn't respond. Mm. Wow. That obviously seems dire and everything, but I do want to switch a little bit and just wrap up with just what would you say to young men who are looking for encouragement? Because it seems, as you said earlier, there's a lot of male unfriendliness. There's a lot of young men. They're growing up in this. I actually used to, I actually had a conversation with my younger sisters and they were saying that a lot of the men in high school and college, they're a good deal younger than me. And so they grew up a lot more with the dear colleague style of, uh, school orientation. They are not approaching women for dates. Yeah. Women have to go out and get them because they're afraid that if they make the first move, they may, whether or not that's, that's justified, that's their fear. So what would you say to young men looking for encouragement? Okay. First of all, you let me know you were going to ask this question and I've been thinking about it. I don't really have a satisfactory answer. I have an answer, some thoughts, but it's not nearly what it should be. Tell me what age group you'd like to talk about. I'd say the biggest one, especially just looking at how, where a lot of crimes are committed, especially is uh, the 13 to 25 year olds. Okay. Any particular demographic or just, well, just, just men. Okay. Yeah. 13 to 25 years old. Okay. I think what I would say is, especially to the ones 13 to 15 to 16, look, you're going through puberty. 
you're on a roller coaster. Your life is not what it is between 13 and 23. Your life is what it will be from 23 to 93. So don't get spooked. Don't freak out that you're a loser and that you don't fit in and that everything is bad for you. Hang in there. When you get to be an adult and puberty is over, you'll have a much better view of, of the reality of your situation. And it won't seem as crazy and horrible and unfair and unbalanced as it feels now. You won't feel as powerless. You won't feel as worried. Uh, you won't feel as insecure about whether you're a loser. That's a term that's applied to men and boys much more than to girls. Limit. So you might feel like a loser, but you're not. You're young. And that's what youth is for. It's so that you can get your act together. I would say something like that. To men in college, they would fall within this age range you gave me. To men in college, I would say, please look at the podcast. It's also a vidcast on YouTube, but it's a podcast at Men Are Talking. That's the name of my podcast. It's the interview with Mark Perry, Professor Mark Perry. And he is waging a one-man campaign to try to make sure that Title IX is balanced and fair. And one of the things I asked him was, do, do you like being a one-man operation? He said, no, it's too much for any one man to do. And I said, wouldn't it be great if, well, I, let me mention this. One of the problems that Professor Perry has is after he gets a university to agree that one of its practices in favor of women and ignoring men is a violation of Title IX, the university, to avoid a, a a protracted litigation involving Title IX, sign a consent decree. And the consent decree will say something like, we will make it clear that this program is open to both boys and girls, men and women, blah, 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 blah. What in fact they'll do is put in eight point type at the bottom of their homepage on their website. This program does not discriminate on the basis of sex, even though the name of the program remains still very clearly focused on and welcoming of girls and women. Okay, so I said, wouldn't it be great if you had a fraternity at, one of, at, at that school, if a national fraternity that had chapters at dozens or maybe even a hundred universities across the country would agree on the basis of just male pride and dignity to work with you on enforcing and monitoring Title IX compliance, such that if you get an order or if you get a consent decree signed whereby the university promises to make certain changes and open up the program to boys as well as to girls, men as well as to women, that the, the the, universe, the university's chapter of that national fraternity will test that and go into that program and document just how well they were received, how welcomed were they, so that the pressure remains on for real change. I think that could be a really exciting and fun project for some national, national fraternity to take on, not because 
it doesn't like girls and women, but because it, it respects and honors itself. It likes and respects men and believes that men deserve an equal shake. And because the fraternity believes that maybe one of the reasons there are so many, there is so much more, uh, there's such a higher percentage of women going to college than men. One of the reasons might be because men considering college have gotten the very clear message through a lot of different means that boys and men really aren't honored and respected and welcomed here. We're blamed for everything. It's very risky. Any woman can put my ass in a sling with an accusation that has no bearing in reality. I'm not going. Mm. But a fraternity that says, no, we're putting an end to this and we're going to make things fair and safe for men, just as other people think that things should be fair and safe for women. I think that would be great. Thank you very much for coming today. It's been awesome. Uh, really, I appreciate it. Uh, it's definitely a viewpoint that I, I think a lot of people need to hear because oftentimes it's your people are viewed as either a feminist or uh, as a woman hater. And that seems to be the two options that are presented to people. And sometimes they just want to say, Hey, I think there's a little of an excess here, and, but it's, they get labeled. So that I think it's something that that's interesting to listen to and should be brought to people. Thank you once again for coming today. Matthew, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. You did a great job with your questions. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow. 